had an email from Andrew earlier in the week asking if one of us would uh, speak tonight instead of him because of his bad back and somehow the lot fell to me and here I am. <clears throat> I'm not sure where we will go with this sermon tonight so be prepared for some um, participation, let me put it that way. And if you have a Bible it would be helpful. There are some up there. It's always good to see exactly what the Word of God is saying. Thank you so much for your prayers for Alpha. We had our Holy Spirit day today and um, we had the privilege of praying with a number of men individually. It struck me again um, how much we take for granted as Christians on the outside and sometimes the enormous struggle that there is for our Christian brothers and sisters on the inside to hold on when much around them makes them feel that they just want to give up. I'd ask especially for your prayers for a very fine Christian young man who's about to be released. His name is Gary. He's not Stafford, so you won't see him, but... Um, my heart cries out to him for his future. Many of the men in Stafford Prison, as you know, they all go out on the sex offenders register. But of course, that's a, that's a blunt instrument which covers a huge variety of misdemeanors, some of them very serious, some of them a, 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 an error of judgment, and some of them, of course, are in there when they shouldn't be. And if you think that's unlikely, just read the story of Joseph and his encounter with Potiphar's wife to see even in those days how easy it was to stitch someone up. Um, but today was, was a beautiful day and I'm very thankful. 99 men in chapel this morning. As Ashley said, Ashley Logan, we should have gone out to look for the lost sheep. But we only found out that there were 99 when we were leaving. So I'm going to ask that we pray again over this particular word of God. Lord, we know that not all that we read in the Bible is easy to understand, but we pray tonight that we might work together with the help of your Holy Spirit to fathom your word and know how to apply it to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John's letters, there are three of them, were probably written by John the Apostle, and uh, we don't know for sure, but we do know that the Greek that is used in both the Gospel and the epistles, the letters, the style, the themes are all very, very similar. And you will already know that John's gospel, of course, is very, very different from the other three. John has a particular desire, I think, not just to tell us about the life of Jesus, but also to help us to understand its implications and to help us to think deeply 
about all that Jesus said and did. It was probably written, this letter uh, of John, between 85 and 95. So it's quite late on in the first Christian century. We know that John lived to an old age. He refers in this letter and in others to the believers as children, my children, which kind of gives the impression maybe that John was an older man now, writing to young Christians that he is anxious to help. We don't know who he has written the letter to, um, probably churches in Asia. We do know that the heresy of Gnosticism, now Gnosticism is about having special knowledge, secret knowledge, which sets you free and which sets you above other people because you have the secret knowledge. But Gnosticism was very, very rampant in the early Christian uh, first century and um, it had very liberal views and it, um, those liberal views extended to the morality of the Gnostics. They lived a rather libertine and free life. It's important for us to know that because, as I said just a couple of weeks ago about the letter to Timothy, these letters are not written in isolation. They're absolutely grounded in the culture and what was going on around. And it's absolutely vital that we remember that and not from 2,000 years forward just uh, sort of read them back as, as being uh, nebulous and without any context. I asked Emmy to read all the verses from 13 to 17. So I'm just going to uh, take us through these verses a little. Now the first thing we notice is that John is writing to believers. He is writing to those who believe. So we immediately think to ourselves, aha, this is a family letter, all right? It's not meant for general distribution to the world. It was very, very focused to those who believe. We know that it's one thing to believe, it's another thing to know. And we also know that it's important what we believe about God because if we don't believe the right things about God, and in our case we're talking about the God of the Bible, then we will not be able to pray appropriately. We will pray to a God that we have made up who is more likely to listen to us. So it's crucial that we believe the right things about God. And John is, in a sense, writing to believers. Jim Packer used to talk about the family secrets of the children of God. He would say, for instance, knowing that we are chosen from the foundation of the world, which is what Paul says in Ephesians, is a family secret of the children of God. It doesn't motivate us to evangelize. 
and we don't go out into the streets of Stafford and say, listen to what we know. We have been chosen from the foundation of the world. Don't know about you lot, but we have been chosen. We are the chosen ones. We do not, in a sense, encourage people into the kingdom of God with things like that, because that's our secret. That's something we know. Jim Packer described it like this. He said, over the entrance to heaven is an archway. And there are words on the archway, and it says, whosoever will can come. The invitation to everyone. You go through the archway, and you turn round, and you see on the back of the archway it says, chosen from the foundation of the world. So in a sense, when reading these letters to believers, we have to hold them close because they are to people who believe. And John is trying to encourage the believers. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John is wanting both prayer, but also assurance. We might have sung tonight another old hymn, Shinky, we might have sung, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. So, you know, I may believe that Jesus lived, died, even rose again, but the blessed assurance is knowing that Jesus is mine and that in him I have salvation and hope and heaven and forgiveness. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And John goes on to say, and this is our confidence. This is our confidence. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. Now, I believe there is a queen in England. I, I probably know there is because I've seen pictures of her. I have absolutely no confidence to approach her unless she invites me first. Then I might have confidence if I was dressed right. But the wonderful thing about our confidence in, in God is that when we know him and when we know he's there, we know he loves us, He cares about us. He's very likely to listen. Imagine going to a God who you weren't sure was very interested in you or was even going to listen. You might feel there's not much point. So the confidence is vital. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. There's another verse in the Bible that says, He who comes to God must believe that he exists. So many people come to God without believing or being sure that he's even there. Praise God, he knows that. But this is the confidence we have, we, his children, in approaching God. And here we are. Here's the prayer thing, which we know so well, that if we ask anything according to his will. It's almost like a blank check, isn't it? And it has been much abused as a blank check. If we ask anything according to his will, we know whatever we ask, 
we know that we have what we ask for. Wow, that is amazing, isn't it? Our friends in Ireland that we're very fond of, in fact, it's his birthday today. He's a good Calvinist Presbyterian minister. Very good fun. Um, But he always remembers to say DV. Do you remember? We always used to say DV, didn't we? What does it stand for? Oh, I wanted the Latin at the very least. Sorry, what do you think? Deus Vult. Yes. We always used to couch everything we did in DV. I'm going to London tomorrow. DV. You know, because we had this, this sense that whatever we asked or whatever we did, we wanted it to be according to God's will. We rarely hear people say DV anymore. What is the will of God? How do we know that what we are asking is according to his will? And what does this really mean? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. There's a clue in the next line. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, asking things according to the will of God means that we need to know God, we need to know his will, and we need to have some idea of what that will might be. Of course, it gets complicated and tricky if you're asking him, as many of the lads do sometimes, to get you off a sentence. I often used to say to them in prison, you can't ask a God of justice to get you off something you know and I know you did. That cannot be according to his will. According to his will, I think, is about us first living according to his will. That's hugely important. And in these Gnostic days, of course, John would want to emphasize that. It's not enough to know. You have to live. Living according to God's will, walking in the light, living according to his moral will, his revealed will, living the way we know we should live as the children of God, is much more likely to help us to pray for God's will to be done. We can pray for peace on earth. That is God's will, isn't it? We can pray for healing. That too is God's will. We might not see healing in time, but we know we will see it in eternity. We can pray for our children to come to know God, especially those who have gone astray. That's a great confidence for me and Terry as we pray for our son. We know it's God's will that he should be saved. We know that God longs to welcome him home. That is a good prayer to pray We know it is according to his will. And we could linger much, much longer thinking about the things which are according to God's will. And we know, says John, that when we ask according to his will, he hears us and he answers our prayer.
Then we come to praying for one another. And this is where it gets tricky. And I, I can see why Andrew might not have wanted to think about this too deeply tonight. Indeed, I didn't either. So here we come to a more tricky part of praying. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death and I am not saying that he should pray about that. Here's a definition of sin. All wrongdoing is sin. If you ever want a definition of sin, here it is. All wrongdoing is sin. The little things and the big things. And there is a sin, you'll be pleased to know, that does not lead to death. And you'll also be pleased to know that although I have looked extensively at this, nobody knows quite what it means. Now, isn't that a comfort? But one thing for sure is that the people John was writing to would have known what this meant. And so John is encouraging them to do the right thing. So James says much the same thing. We are to look out for one another. And we are in a church fellowship to be accountable to one another. Paul says when one hurts, we all hurt. So if one of our number gets caught up in something which is wrong or sinful or willful, it affects us all. We all hurt. We all should feel it. James says this, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Love, it says somewhere else, covers a multitude of sins. So we have a duty to look out for one another. If anyone sees his brother or sister commit a sin, that does not lead to death. He is to help and to pray for that particular brother. Now, our son went to Liberty University in America. Liberty University was owned and run by Jerry Falwell. It was a deeply seated, conservative, um, Republican, Southern Baptist university. It didn't really suit him but um, he, he persevered there. Liberty was run on an honor code. And the idea of the honor code was exactly this. This was the scripture that was quoted. If any of the students saw one another do something which was wrong, like sneak a girl into their room or watch a video that wasn't PG or any of Liberty's many, many rules, they were honor-bound to report it. In fact, they had to sign something on their first day as new students that they would do that. You would appreciate that is a tricky way to live. But that was the honor code of Liberty University based fairly and squarely 
on these words, that we have a duty to help one another not to fall into sin. I think it's probably one of the things, because it comes up in other parts of the New Testament, we are not very good at doing. It is hard, isn't it? It is, of course, the duty of elders, particularly, to watch over their flock and to watch over the lives of their flock and have the courage to say, I don't think you should be doing this. In that way, we turn a sinner from the error of their way and save them from death. It's worth remembering too that that is how the people of North Korea live. They live in a constant state of mistrust and fear as children are encouraged to report their parents. Teachers are encouraged to report the children. Children are encouraged to report the teachers. And in that way, the entire society is galvanized and paralyzed by fear and mistrust. So you can see sometimes if you take things too literally, it can lead you down a wrong road. So we can't go away tonight without thinking a little bit about this sin because John wants us to pray for one another. What is this sin that leads to death and whose death are we talking about? Jesus, you remember, talked about an unforgivable sin. He said it was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He says, and I will quote, I can find it. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Well, we could certainly wrestle with that one and think about what Jesus meant by that. And I'm only using it to just say that although John says this and it seems like it's come out of nowhere, it is actually echoing something which is already there in Scripture. He also talked about people who cause little ones to stumble. Do you remember what he said should happen to them? Okay. Um, have you ever wondered if Jesus advocated capital punishment? I think this verse is tricky. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for them if we, as Shingi said, tie a millstone round their neck and drown them, cast them into the deepest sea. I'm just sort of saying because there are sins in the Bible which are taken incredibly seriously. In Jeremiah, which is Jeremiah chapter 7, he talks about the people, the people of God, 
who are sinning and worshipping idols, which might be a clue to why John ends this letter by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So here's what Jeremiah writes. Go now to Shiloh, where I first made a dwelling for my name, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing these things, says the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called to you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites. So, says Jeremiah, do not pray for these people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me for them, for I will not listen. In Hebrews 10, it says this, and I remember my rector at St. Peter's in Mowbray (coughs) saying there is no sacrifice for deliberate sin, which I thought was very scary, and indeed in Hebrews it does say that. But it also says this, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, which is, of course, what happened to Jesus at his trial. So how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, or who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And, says the writer to Hebrews, it is a dreadful thing, a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And my final, it's a bit like um, witness statements. This is what Paul says to the church in Corinth. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud of it. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you, 
you are to put such a one out of your fellowship. In fact, Paul says, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. I want to tell you, you must not associate with anyone who claims to be, and this is the key, isn't it, her brother or sister, but who is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't, says Paul, even eat with these people. And then he says this, what business of mine is it to judge those outside the church? Are you not rather to judge those inside the church? God will judge those outside. All hard to hear, aren't they? But they're in scripture for us to ponder. And I come back to these verses that this sin which leads to death, though we may have an inkling of it, we don't actually know what it was about. So when is it ever right to stop praying for someone? Is it ever right to stop praying for someone? And shaking her head. And I think it's a big decision to make, to say, we're not going to pray for that person anymore because there is no point. Are there people on this earth that it would have been better if they had never been born. Well, this is my Lent book, and I'm going to finish by reading a little bit to you from it. It's by Brother Ramon. It's called, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? And it's a powerful and wonderful book. And this week we have been looking at Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is an immense problem Jesus said the son of man goes as it is written by uh, the son of man goes as it is written of him but woe to that one by whom the son of man is betrayed it would have been better for that one never to have been born so this raises an immense question are there people in our world about whom it can be said it were better that they had never seen the light of day. We can think of the great tyrants of history, none worse than some of those in the last century, like Stalin and Hitler. And then what did we initiate on the 6th of August 1945 with the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Dark cosmic powers were at work in the ancient world and continued to corrupt people and nations with malice and hatred. And earlier in our prayer time, Shinki referred to that. During this week, we have seen that there may have been a great deal of early yearning and enthusiasm when Judas answered the call of Christ to discipleship. 
and even though the process of corruption seems to have overtaken him for reasons about which we can only speculate. Nevertheless, he did not appear at the trial. He did not witness against Jesus. And we read of his sorrow, his remorse, and his repentance. Do you remember how Judas went into the temple? He threw down the silver onto the floor and he said, What have I done? I have betrayed innocent blood. And the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, What is that to us? And he went out and he hanged himself. The one question which perhaps remains for us is whether Judas, allowing his remorse to lead him to despair in this life and to suicide, has any plan in the mercy of God. Ultimately, and I believe this is the answer to should we ever stop praying, ultimately we can only leave him in the hands of the all-knowing and gracious God, whose secret counsels are beyond anything we can imagine. And if we believe that Jesus Christ is the image of God amongst humanity, we may listen to and apply Jesus' prayer to Judas as he was nailed to the cross and cried, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Let us pray. Jesus whose mercy is infinite, I have no doubt that you called me, as you called Judas, to love and holiness. But I have doubt about my ability to persevere. Only by your grace can I begin to follow And only by the anointing of your spirit can I be kept from corruption and maintained in holiness. Therefore, I praise you for past mercies. I live in present forgiveness and I look to you for future joy. Amen.